Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And since the two of us are together in front of a couple of microphones, you got Stuff You Should Know. That's right. The, um, oh, is it an award that we won on iTunes? At the very least, we won a vote. <laughs> yeah, the vote-winning podcast. <laughs> yeah. Popular podcast. That's what we can call ourselves. But yeah. Have we won an award? Are we award-winning? No. No? Nope. Okay. Maybe someone at home will make us an award and send it in. We've been awarded a podcast, so we are award-winning. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yes. So that's this. What we're about to do. And I think it's becoming painfully obvious why we haven't won any awards the more we talk about this. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you doing good? Uh, I'm great. You getting sucked for Comic-Con? It's yeah. coming in like two days, dude. Well, by the time this is out, we'll be like long since have pooped our pants on stage <laughs> and laughed at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By- the, the horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited though. Sure. San Diego. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go right now. Yes. Just wait a day. Um, in the meantime, Chuck, I have a proposal that we speak about the Musketeers. Uh, let's hear it. The intro, that is. Oh, the intro. Yeah. It's like, I'm not handling this one by myself. <laughs> yeah, just take it away. Uh, God, can you imagine how long that episode would be? <laughs> if I just discoursed on the Musketeers alone without Wait. you, it'd just keep going and going. <laughs> An infinite loop. Hey, have you ever heard of a little candy company named Mars? Yeah. Nowadays, I think it's M&M's Mars, but back then it was just Mars. My stars, my stars. How does Mars make such wonderful candy bars? How old are you? I'm 41, and my grandfather used to say that. It brings back like great memories. That was like one of the things Grand- Granddaddy Mills did. Oh, I'm sorry to tarnish it with sarcasm. No, that's all right. Um, okay, well, this company, Mars, that mm-hmm. your grandfather liked, and rightly so, sure. Mars Bar is one of the greatest all-time candy bars ever. Eh. You're crazy if you say meh. What, what's in a Mars bar? Nougat, caramel, almonds. It's just this great melange of flavors. The almonds are what really do it. Meh. It's like it's like the thinking man Snickers. Throw some peanut butter in there and I'm on board. Hey, I'm with you too. Okay. Well, uh, this is long before anybody ever thought to put peanut butter in anything besides maybe a sandwich. Right. Um, it's 1932. The Mars Company released a candy that they called, very appropriately in my my opinion, the Three Musketeers. Okay. Today, you pick up a Three Musketeers bar, you're like, what the hell does this mean? Yeah. Um, back then, you could very easily figure out what it meant because it was three pieces of milk chocolate-covered nougat in three different flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. Really? Hence, Three Musketeers. Three different pieces, three different flavors. So it was three different flavors all in one single wrapper. Yes. That's pretty ingenious. So, like, you pulled the wrapper back, and you're like, oh, there's three. Like, which one do I want like, What first? value? Which oh, one yeah. do I want to give to my little brother? It was, you give your little brother probably the strawberry one. Oh, is there, yeah. Strawberry, vanilla, chocolate. So it's, it's like Neapolitan. Sure. I didn't realize it. I had no idea that there were three. It makes sense now, because now when you open it up, you're like, I don't get it. It's one candy bar. That's what I'm saying. It's it named after a, a, a novel, a classic novel. Uh, yes, it is. Thank you for that segue, because sure. I didn't know how I was going to get out of this one. <laughs> there I'd, you have it. <laughs> I'd whip myself into a quagmire. 
today the, the classic novel. Today we've got three musketeers that are just the chocolate nougat. We have a classic novel written by Alexandra Dumas. I checked pronunciation. Don't even try me on that. I listened to a Frenchman. That's you. Oh, really? I listened to a Frenchman say it. There's this website called Forvo.com. Yeah. It's people's names. I had Not someone send words, that in. names. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. And one thing I realized reading this is I don't think we have, uh, we don't get a lot of mail from uh, the French. No. You ever notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder why. Do you think that there's probably not a French, not a lot of French listeners? No, I don't think so. Okay, we're beneath I, them. W- yeah, I don't think we're hitting their wheelhouse much. It's like podcast, exactly. Uh-huh. Not just podcast. I think podcasts like Mark Maron's huge in France. But oh, then he? again, so is Jerry Lewis. So, I guess if I was sitting around a cafe, like by the river, drinking wine, I wouldn't have an iPod anywhere near me. <laughs> I wouldn't. I would throw it in the river and just like live my life. You know where we are huge is India. True. Which is awesome to me. Agreed. Hey, India. Uh, let's talk about The Three Musketeers, right? You said it was a, a novel by Alexander Dumas. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the really quick one sentence summation mm-hmm. is, uh, is, uh, Hick, adventurer D'Artagnan. D'Artagnan. Mo- moves out of the sticks. And uh, because he wants to join the the famed uh, musketeers, the guard, the musketeers of the guard, yes, the, the king's basically secret service right hand men. Yes, special he wants forces. to join them. He goes there. He meets the three musketeers, uh-huh. Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, uh-huh. and he eventually works his way into, I guess, to be the fourth musketeer. Well, he he presents himself with the opportunity to prove his valor and his courage and his skill. By basically hanging around them. Yeah, and along the way, there are duels, and there's some lovemaking. Yeah, I think this is the only <laughs> article on HowStuffWorks.com that has the word lovemaking. The fighting, it. adventure, and lovemaking. And it's hyperlinked, too. Is it really? Yeah. To what? I would imagine sex. To an article on sex? Yeah. Okay. Um, that was a great summation. There's no need to read The Three Musketeers or any of the other works by Dumas that feature the three musketeers including the man in the iron mask oh was that him yeah i didn't know that but i kind of figured you know like who else is writing that stuff yeah i, I don't know he was he kind of had the market cornered he was the john grisham of his day he was the john grisham the danielle Steele, yeah and the uh sue grafton of his day okay well put thanks um so well the weird thing i guess it's not too weird is that he wrote this novel a couple of hundred years after the real action takes place. And it came out at a time when, you know how, you know, later on people have a real fascination with things that came before them. Right. It came out during the Romantic era right. in the 1840s where people were like, dude, it's swashbuckling and these outfits and the lovemaking. Like, <laughs> give me more. Right. So it was really, really popular. Right. And uh, it was also popular because it was based on actual events featuring historical characters. Yeah, all those dudes were real. Yeah, D'Artagnan, um, or D'Artagnan, uh-huh. he was a real person, and actually the Three Musketeers um, that Dumas wrote was based on a semi-fictional memoir written about that guy who was a real musketeer of the guard who was who went on to, to great glory, actually. He became the 
he he traveled from the hinterlands, I think Gascony, yeah, um, to sticks. join up the sticks. Joined up, eventually became commander of the the musketeers of the guard. But did they cover that in the well? The, well the, there was more than one book, though, right? Yeah, there were several. Okay, and the original book was serialized too. We'll talk about Dumas in a minute, right? All right. The point is, is that his work was based on real people, but it was super fictionalized and super romantic. Yes, it was. Um, and all of it was based on the idea that in the 17th century, there was this new invention that gave rise to all of this, the musket. Thank you, China. Yes. Like everything else almost on the planet that we have, thank you, China. Right. They were the leaders in pretty much everything back in the day. And uh, around 1,000, they invented a little something called gunpowder. Yeah. And um, you pack this stuff in a tube that's a metal tube, only open on one end. You, you light it like a, sort of like a mini cannon. They called it a hand cannon. A hand cannon. And boy, I bet there was a lot of mistakes early on in this oh, stuff. Oh, man. Uh, can you imagine that going wrong? <laughs> yes. So easily. I can. Um, and it would, uh, they would light it through something called a touch hole. And then there would be an explosion, create this hot gas that would send whatever they stuck inside there, which was a little round ball yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, it would send it out at decent speeds. At first. Fairly decent, yeah. I mean, for back then, that was probably like, whoa, look at that hurling projectile. Right. It, well, it was probably more like, magic, run. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's some, the man has a hand dragon. <laughs> they didn't think they called it a hand cannon yet. They probably yeah, called sure. it a hand dragon. Yeah. Um, and it was mostly, it produced a psychological effect because it wasn't very accurate. And like you said, that it, it didn't really shoot it out at fast speeds. Yeah, it would like, a knight's armor, it would like hit it and go, plunk. And then fall on the ground, and the knight would bend down and pick it up and put it in his uh, little satchel, and, and then he would cut go, you in half. Yeah, cut you in half with the sword. Yeah. So, at first, not super effective. No, but it it inspired people to make this better. Like we can do better with a hollow tube and a stick and a touch hole. So let's figure this out. Yeah, if I may, segue to the side here for a moment. I, this got to got me thinking today about battle and just warfare mm. and weaponry and how it's still so basic. I mean, it's like super advanced now with how they do it, but Tuk Tuk starts out by hitting another caveman in the face. Like it's warfare start out with your fists and then it transforms into like eventually someone uses a club and they're like, Hey, this implement is like way better than hitting you with my fist because right. it's harder and I can do more damage and I can get a little further away from you. Then come like swords and things and lances and they could get even further away. And the whole, the whole history of weaponry is about hurling bigger fists from longer distances. Whether it was the arrow, then later the bullet. Right. And now you have like inner ICBMs that are just like really, really, really big fists that you can fire from really, really far away. I think the point you're making is that war, no matter how advanced we get, is really primitive. It is. It's a primitive idea. I didn't know that was my point, but that's, I think it's spot on. Um, All right, back to it. Thank you for that. Sure. I just, that was quite I a thought segue. It was, I thought you it was even, interesting. You even asked if you could do it first. That was really formal. Well, and each each method was like a little bit further away, like right. arrows, like, hey, we can get him further away, and then... Pretty soon it was bullets, and then it was like sniper rifles, yeah. and then it was missiles. And now it's some guy sitting in Nevada shooting people in Afghanistan. Yeah, with a, on his computer. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Um, 
Okay, so back to the musket. Right? Yes. Um, we've gone from gunpowder to hand cannon, and now we're at the arquebus. That's right. Not arquebus. <laughs> Early 1500s, learned. to be specific. And this actually had a shoulder stock, which was like a huge deal because it wasn't just a stick attached to this metal tube. Like mm-hmm. You could actually aim this sucker now. Right. You could look down the barrel and point it at something. And you could shoot it, and it would shoot a projectile. But again, still, the ultimate goal, the ultimate the the pinnacle of the battlefield was the horse mounted knight in armor. Yes. And if that guy was wearing plate, the arquebus wasn't gonna do it still. 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 Still a matchlock weapon, which meant you had to light a little thing. Yeah. So you needed a touch hole of some sort and you needed a some something like a smoldering piece of yarn, maybe. Yeah, you needed something dry. Right. Which is a key that we will find out. Right. That's a big problem. Yeah. Like when it's raining your archivist is not going to yeah. help. But you and know what works well in the rain? What? A sword. It does. Like the one that the um, horse-mounted uh, knight in armor is using to cut you in half yet again. A exactly. hundred years later. Yeah. Right? So um, people are like, "This we can make this work. This has got to work. We have to figure this out. And the Spaniards were the ones that came up with this new thing called the mosquito. The sparrowhawk or the boomstick. <laughs> as I like to call it. Yeah. Uh, it was even longer barreled. Um, it was really heavy. I looked up pictures of this thing. They actually mounted it on a little forked stick. Yeah. Like, um, sort of like Rambo. Actually, Rambo carried his. His, uh, 50 millimeter? Yeah, but that's supposed to be on a tripod. Yeah. You understand. But yeah, Rambo no, is so muscly right. that he could carry it. Rambo and Charlie Sheen and Hot Shots. Oh, did he use that too? Yeah. Because he was imitating Rambo. Right. Okay. So uh, they used the fork stick to like hold it steady and to help them out. Uh, the French called it a mosquite. Uh, the English called it a musket. A musket. I think you see where we're going here. Yeah. Um, it was also matchlock, but it was actually could fire something that would go through armor, finally. And then all of a sudden, the knights are like, oh, man. Shoot. I'm in trouble. <laughs> we're done. And they actually did fade from the battlefield after that. Yeah, thanks with to the, the gun. With the mosquito, the mosquito, or the musket. Yeah. And we covered that in the Knights podcast, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. We totally did. Um, so then they're like, okay, we figured it out. We got the knight down. The The problem is, is like this thing requires a forked stick to aim. Yeah, it's like 20 pounds. Yeah, and you need a pikeman, another soldier, um, who has an 18-foot spear yeah. to protect you while you're reloading. I would want two pikemen. Yeah, well, I think you probably had your own little formation because you were so important. Sure. You could just stand back and shoot a knight. Yeah. So, yeah, they're going to give you as many pikemen as you asked for if you knew how to shoot one of those things. With your hand dragon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, they, they're like, okay, we've got it. Now all we have to do is refine it. And one of the first refinements they made was to make it a flintlock. Huge. Yeah, so now you didn't have to carry a smoldering piece of yarn any longer. That's right. Uh, flintlock worked in the rain because it would strike a, a piece of flint mm-hmm. uh, against steel, yep. producing the spark instead of needing that open flame or the smoldering yarn. Right. Did they really use yarn? Um, they would use like something akin to yarn. Okay. They pr- it probably was yarn, but they spelled it with an e on the end. <laughs> gotcha. Yarny. <laughs> um, so all of a sudden you could uh, you could shoot it in wet weather, which was awesome. And because the knights have sort of gone the way of the dodo, mm-hmm. it didn't have to be a, you know, a two-inch iron ball right. that you're shooting. So that means that the gun itself can be smaller. Everything can be smaller and lighter. Right. Very big deal. 
So now we're starting to see like the kind of thing that the uh, Minutemen used in colonial America. That's right. For those of you into that era, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and then they also got rid of the pikemen by attaching a bayonet to it. Yeah, I don't know about that. They said that that rendered pikemen uh, like unnecessary, but I would still rather have an, another dude with an 18-foot lance than me with my bayonet on the end of my rifle. But you might like to have that, but your field commander would rather have another guy with a musket and a bayonet. Yeah, that's true. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Get rid of the pike, give him a musket and a bayonet instead, and all of a sudden you got two people shooting fire. Yeah, good point. So they still called it a musket. Yeah, and technically anybody who had a musket and used a musket in battle was a musketeer. I bet a lot of guys like to throw that word around back in the day, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm a musketeer. Right. And then the other guys would say, you're not a real musketeer. Right. A real musketeer, Josh, as we mentioned earlier, personal household guards of uh, King Louis the, uh, what is that, 13th? Yeah. And apparently he it was was he the one who founded it? Yeah, he formed uh, the guard officially in 1622. The Musketeers of the Guard, like they had to add the extra couple of words so you didn't just think they were some schmoes with the musket. Exactly, because everyone with a, a musket at that point is, like we said, bragging to, about being a musketeer. Sure, yeah, because this is like high technology at the time. Oh yeah, big, and it stayed that deal. way for a century, like yeah. from the, the the musket, the flintlock musket that. And any infantryman could carry with the bayonet mm-hmm. was started, was introduced at the beginning of the 18th century and like all the way up to the 19th century. Like that is what people used. Yeah. And then that just like became the a rifle. I mean, it's not sure. I mean, it changed somewhat, but like as soon as China invented gunpowder, it was all over. Yeah. People would be dying left and right. Yep. Sadly. Yeah. Um, all right. So these are, like we said, these were. Sort of like special forces, secret service, the private uh, guardians of the king and his family. Yeah. Very important because in France during the 17th century, the early 17th century, it wasn't like a, a party going on back there. No, but and actually- A lot, um, of, lot of troubles. Louis XIII, uh, his father, um, Henri IV, I believe, was assassinated um, and- Louis Thirteenth became, he ascended to the throne, he became king at age nine. I was like the boy kings that cracks me up. Yeah. And he had like a, a child bride, uh, Anne of Austria, I believe her name was. And I guess overseeing this whole thing was a guy named Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah. So at, at this time, and this was, I think, fairly correct, um, there were, there were, uh, there was a lot of internal civil strife in France. Religiously based. Yes. The French were also battling the Habsburgs of Austria. And within his own house, Louis XIII was having to worry about the Machiavellian, which was new at the time, Mm -hmm. machinations of Cardinal Richelieu, his, um, basically his Dick Cheney. Yeah, but a Dick Cheney with like an eye on the throne. Yes. So his Karl Rove. Yeah. It's very, (laughs) it's very Games of Throny. Yeah, I don't know if you watched that or read it, but no, I, I've sort heard of, of it though. Yeah, I've seen. There's like a, a throne made of swords. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it's really good stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, so the musketeers were there. They're guarding the king. A lot of religious upheaval. Yeah, that was the big one. Yeah, French Protestants saying we don't like you Catholics. Catholics are saying we don't like you Huguenots, which were the French Protestants. Right. And so there was a lot of warring going on. So the king needed these like 
super specialized. And these dudes were, you know, they were bad. Yeah. They were like the tough guys of the time. Right. Even though they were dressed up in frilly, frilly clothing. <laughs> it's true. That apparently struck fear into the hearts of their enemies. Yeah. They're like, look at the deep blue, that gold embroidery. <laughs> but they were highly trained and their, uh, their morale or their esprit de corps mm-hmm. was, uh, legendary. Yeah. Evidently. Well, they were also, um, expert swordsmen. They were called musketeers and they knew what they were doing with them, with a musket. Sure. But, Day to day, they had a uh, a sword by their side, and they could take your head clean off with it. Yeah, and, and that's, they did. In the in the book, you're going to see a lot more uh, sword fight, mm-hmm. and in the movies, they've adapted than uh, any kind of musket play. Yeah, supposedly in in the book, muskets are just they show up a few times. They're only fired a few times, but the rest is all swords and swashbuckling. But they were still musketeers, right? So, and the reason, again, they were musketeers because this was cutting-edge technology at the time, and if you were somebody who was really proficient with the musket, you were somebody special. Yeah, you also had to be, um, you didn't have to be, but it helped out if you were an aristocrat, a nobleman. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to be loaded, but you had to kind of run in those circles, right? or you're never going to get picked up. Yeah, to be one of the what was it, 150 to 300. Uh, yeah, that's at a the, time. That's the most, the most and the least they ever had operationally, and they were actually like this is again this is real life we're talking about. Yeah. Um. They they were formed in uh, 1622, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and they ran all the way into the uh, until 1816. Yeah. When they were disbanded due to a lack of funding. I know, and I saw they they rebanded a couple of times after in mm-hmm. subsequent years, and then disbanded again, and yeah. then. Eventually, they all went on to solo success. Yeah, as artists, entertaining recording artists. Yeah, yeah. The Aramis, he had a nice line of deodorants and personal <laughs> fragrances. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> um. So now, can we talk a little bit about the book? And Alexander, what do you call him? Dumas. Dumas. Very nice. Paris, eighteen twenties, very popular. John Grisham like in his output. Right. The swinging Paris scene of the 1820s. Yeah. So he was turning out books like he had people writing stuff for him. He was like the Andy Warhol of his time. Like he he had he would have people say, like, here's the structure of the book you're about to write. And he would sit down and write it. Research, tone, chapter ideas. He had assistance for everything. And he would just crank this out like it was an assembly line. Well, they were hugely popular. Yeah, they but, definitely were. But historians say don't knock him because he also had the goods as a writer. Right, exactly. And that's that's a really like that's just his prolificness alone is pretty awesome. But then if you combine the idea that he was actually good at what he did, yeah, that's staggering. Like his collected works, his unabridged collected works, fills up three hundred volumes. Really? Yes. Wow. And uh, like some of it's really great, like. If you read the Three Musketeers, you're like, "Wow, this is pretty cool. This is a, it's it's neat. It's interesting. It's engrossing." Yeah. Um, and the lovemaking, <laughs> right? Ooh. It's hyperlinked <laughs> all over the place. Uh, so, do we get specific about the real D'Artagnan's uh, musketeer life? A little bit. We said that he he came from Gascony. Yeah. Uh, a, a little bit before. Or was it after? No, he was after. He um, came where on he was set in the novel. Yeah, he came on in 1632, which was a little later than the fictional version, and served under Louis the Fourteenth, mm-hmm. the Sun King. He was the Sun King. Mm-hmm. You know a lot about French history. Well, I went to Versailles once. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Oh, very nice. Um, I never made it there. 
I didn't make it inside, but oh, I went to Versailles. Oh, you tried though. <laughs> right. That's an ugly like, incident. Let me in. <laughs> um, and he actually, the real D'Artagnan, became the commander of the Musketeers uh, and was killed in 1673. Yeah. And apparently, the three dudes were also based on real guys, right? Right. There, I don't know if their names were dead on, but they're pretty close approximations in the book. Um, and so. Like you said, like this book was hugely popular. It was first serialized in the French magazine La Siècle. La Siècle. Very nice. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> but um, in 1844, and like you said, he was really hitting the romantic period. Yeah. And everybody loved it. So they took this, they took the serial and um, put it into a book. That's why a lot of the chapters have like cliffhangers. Oh, okay. Because it was published, it was serialized in a magazine. Well, I think he started out. Didn't he start out as a playwright? Yeah. Okay, which makes sense with yeah. the whole cliffhanger thing. Right. So he uh, he writes, never really gets the respect that some of his contemporaries, like Victor Hugo, sure. um, got, or Emile Zola. Right. Um, and it wasn't until 2002, and this possibly was because he had um, mixed race uh, heritage. Oh, really? His Yeah, his grandfather was a French nobleman. His his grandmother, I believe, was a Creole woman from Haiti. Oh, that's right. So he had um, African in his blood. Yeah. Um, now, in France, it's not anything like it is in uh, the United States where it's like that that idiotic one-drop rule. Right. Um, but apparently it was enough. There was enough racism in France that, like, it wasn't until 2002 uh, when Jacques Chirac was president that he was moved, um, his remains were moved to the uh, Pantheon Alongside, like, Zola. Really? It took that long? Yep. Huh. So uh, a lot of people said, well, no, he was he was a hack. He was he was just a hack, you know? Like, he was right. good, but he was still a hack, and that's why people didn't take him seriously. But it's also possible it was because of his, his uh, racial background as well. I think that, and this bodes well for us, I think hundreds of years on, even prolific hacks can be looked upon as, you know, geniuses. <laughs> right. So... That's pretty much what I've been betting on since we first sat down pretty and much. started doing these. <laughs> yeah. It's just somebody out there. Somehow society is going to just devolve and they'll be like, these guys are... It'll be like idiocracy. Yeah, That's exactly. our meal ticket. Right. But more entertaining. Uh, you got anything else? No. I mean, the rest is history. Great, <laughs> great book. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love the story behind the musket and the musketeers, the real life thing. That was great. Pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I like my history. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Alexander Dumas and the Musketeers and muskets, uh, you can type Musketeers, M-U-S-K-E-T-E-E-R-S, into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means it's time for listener mail. Josh, I'm going to call this uh, clarification on uh, that I actually feel pretty bad about. Oh, okay. That's what I'm going to call it. Okay. Um, Josh and Chuck just started listening to Stuff You Should Know, and I love the podcast. But I was recently uh, listening to your Samurai podcast, and I couldn't help but notice that you gave credit to George Lucas when talking about a Darth Vader mask uh, and its relative similarity to the Samurai Kabuto mask. Remember that? Yes. Um, I thought I would point out that Mr. Lucas, although responsible for Star Wars, was not responsible for the design or the conception of Vader's mask. Uh, Credit for that should go to the great concept artist Ralph McQuarrie, who's uh, used future aesthetic as in like old timey looking yeah no I, I love that aesthetic seriously oh yeah me too uh, it's one of the reasons for the iconic status of Star Wars and really informed like 
every great space movie since, don't you think? Yeah, like think about it, like the uh, um, uh, like a spaceport or something like that. Like all the jet engines are kind of battered and beaten and yeah. everything. And every once in a while, I'll go to an airport and look and see the planes are just like that, and I'll just see exactly what that guy was doing and how well they nailed it. Agreed. So Macquarie, hats off to you and Geiger. Oh yeah, HR okay. Geiger is awesome. I'm gonna take my hat off to you two as well, sir. Um, and then continue with the email. Okay. Lucas's original script did not put Vader in a mask at all, evidently, uh, and it was Ralph's idea to put a frightening helmet on the Sith Lord. Uh, Macquarie recently passed away, and it would be a shame if his contributions to popular culture were not recognized. And Joe from San Francisco could not agree more, and I'm glad you pointed this out, because movies, although it is a director's medium, are made up of many, many, many people's talents contributing uh, to the end result of the film, and people like Macquarie are often overlooked with something as iconic as Darth Vader's mask. That's awesome. So thank you for that, Joe, from San Francisco. Well done, Joe. Here's to you. Um, well, yeah, if you have an awesome correction for us, or just a clarification, or if you want to tell us that we were utterly and completely wrong about something, we're always open to hearing that kind of thing, especially if you're nice. Yeah, be what's, nice. What's wrong with being nice? Nothing. There's no point in being mean. Um, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com at uh, Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?